You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. This morning we'll be looking at what I hope is a familiar passage found in Leviticus chapter 3, verses 19 to 33, and I'll read that in a moment. We're going to be concentrating on verses 22 to 24. In a sense, what I want to do this morning is continue the series that David's been doing in the book of Job on suffering, but looking at a different book and a different way of looking at suffering. Um, And so it's continuing the series, but it's different. Let me now read to you from God's word in in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 through 33. Hear now God's word. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope, whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. Let's pray. Lord, as we contemplate this, your word, we come this morning weak in faith, and we pray, dear Lord, that you would speak to us by your word, that you would pour out your spirit upon us, and that you would give us ears of faith to hear your word. Strengthen our faith. Help us to put down roots in Jesus Christ as the one who is faithful to the end. May our trust be in him and in him alone. In all things, to the praise of his glorious name, we ask it. Amen. What kind of things can you tell people when they're suffering? What happens when things just don't work out the way you think they ought to? When the realities of life come crushing in, how do you react? One thing I want to say very clearly from the outset is something to avoid. And that is what I'll call Christian fatalism or Christian stoicism, often on the basis of Romans 8.28, you know, all things work together for good. We get this idea that we just kind of have to suck it up and kind of almost enjoy suffering. That's not a biblical perspective. Not at all. It's not toughing it out, trying to ignore the pain as though suffering was something that wasn't really there. Rather, biblically, it's seeing suffering for what it is. Pain, 
agony, loss, hurt, horror. But in looking through the tears, always to the Redeemer, it's setting our suffering hearts on Christ and crying out to him in the midst of suffering. On the other hand, we should also avoid another extreme, and that is what I'll call candy Christianity. You know, everything works out in the end. It'll all be good. Just kind of wait long enough and everybody will be happy. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes people die in pain and suffering. That's the reality of life in a fallen world. So we can't have the extreme that pain is a good thing or that we just ignore it and try to escape it either. Amid suffering, we need to look in hope to Christ who remained faithful. Faithful unto death, death on the cross. Too often we begin with ourselves when we are struggling with some kind of suffering. We try to do it on our own. Then crisis hits and it's impossible. Not that it's ever possible, really. But when crisis hits, we're really aware we can't do this. We don't have the strength. We get weary. We lose heart in our struggles. And we need to avoid that. We need to focus on the Lord and his grace and sink roots down into who he is and all that he is and let his character nourish our faith, especially when we face trying situations, health issues, employment issues, loss of a loved one, problems within the family, parents, children, spouse, Debilitating relationships with other people that just cripple us. We have to trust in the Lord. We have to trust in him who remains faithful in the midst of suffering. Now this passage in Lamentations is one that's familiar. And unfortunately it gets quoted oft times completely out of context. And is taken to mean things that Jeremiah never intended it to mean in the original context in which it was written. And hence, we need to take a much more detailed look at this passage in its proper context. And I'm going to be spending a lot of time this morning talking about the context of this passage and spending a lot more than might normally be uh, the case so that we can understand what's being said here aright. And in particular, we want to look at two different contexts. First context is the immediate horror of the situation in which this was written. And let that just grab us emotionally. But then, as we move on from that and go through the text, we need to come to the second context, which is the horror to which this passage points us, namely Christ's death on the cross. Because this is about Jesus and what he went through. So keep that in mind as we go through this passage. And I know you've watched television and seen some of the warnings that come on before certain uh, programs, you know, that this, the, the coming program contains violent scenes of violence and may contain flashing images. I almost feel like I have to say that this morning because this is not pretty. It's ugliness beyond our imagination. There's scenes of violence here that we're going to look at this week. Look at some scripture passages. So just be warned. If you have a weak stomach... Maybe you need to look away. But as we read the book of Lamentations, it should drive us to weep. 
If you read the book of Lamentations and don't come away weeping, you haven't understood what's being said there. This is a book of wailings to the Lord in the midst of horror and suffering, the likes of which no one should endure, and yet it's suffering that sin has produced. The book of Lamentations grapples with the question of corporate suffering in a similar way that the book of Job grapples with the question of individual suffering. And yet the theological purpose of Lamentations is to acknowledge God's judgment against Jerusalem and plead for his compassion toward his people and the restoration of his people. But as I said, we need to look at the context And that context begins with the destruction of Jerusalem. We need to see both the reality of the physical horror of that destruction and the anguish of the theological question that was posed by the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, this is the first passage that speaks of the initial exile of the people of God. The Babylonians came. They did some damage. They took some people away. Exile, God's people. How could that be? Had God left them? Started them wondering. But if you look through there, that's only the beginning. You look to the next chapter. If I can get this to work. And chapter 25 is portrayed here a two year siege of the city of Jerusalem, like I told to the kids. Two years, no food in the city. It was horrible. Begins in the ninth year of Zedekiah and goes on to the eleventh year of the king. You can read here the things that happen. There's a destruction of the city. Some of the army escapes, but then the Babylonians go after them, capture them, bring the king back. They kill all of his children right in front of him, and then he put his, his eyes out and take them off to Babylon. And then they tear down the walls of the city of God. Where God said, I'm always going to dwell there. This is not something many of us, if any, have ever gone through. This is suffering at its max. And yet, you have to understand, these are just the external facts. If you look with me in Lamentations chapter 2, starting at verse 18... We hear the wailing of the prophet Jeremiah as he writes this. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. Your walls of daughter of Zion. Let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night. As the watchers of the night begin, pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands To him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. Look, Lord, and consider whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? It's horrible. Look over in Lamentations 4 where it's reiterated. Starting in verse 9, page 827 of the Bible, in the pews. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. 
racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became food when my people were destroyed. You can't help but be gripped emotionally with the intensity of the physical suffering with which the people endured at the hands of the Babylonians. War, death, famine, starvation, cannibalism, humiliation, rape, children butchered before one's eyes, and then exile, removed from your country. The only word to describe this is horror. And Lamentations gives voice to the anguish and to the tears of those who went through this. And yet we need to understand it's not just this external physical suffering that's going on here. We need to understand the theological side of the anguish felt by the people of God as they wept the words of the book of Lamentations. They had been in covenant relationship with God. He had promised to be their God, that they would be his people forever. And now they're on their way to Babylon. They've seen all of this destruction, this horror. What's going on is going through their minds. We need to understand the theological side. They had the covenant promises of God to David. God says, I'm always going to dwell in Jerusalem. Always. And there would always be a descendant of David on the throne. Guess what? That's no longer the case. Jerusalem is destroyed. The king has been taken into exile. What are they to understand about God's covenant promises now? The agonizing theological question which is pulsing through their minds of every Jew as they marched off into exile was, has God abandoned us forever? Are we lost forever? Is there no hope of salvation, no hope of restoration in the covenant fellowship with God. Everything the Jews had and were depended on and flowed out of that covenant relationship. If that was gone, all was lost. So it's not just the physical suffering. They're wondering, do we still have a God? Does he still care for us? So in the depths of their souls, they're in agony about what's going on here. We need to understand something of the covenant. It has two parts. It has curses and blessings. If you keep the covenant, there's blessings. If you violate the covenant, there's curses. And God's people had over and over and over again violated the covenant in the most flagrant ways. God would send a form of judgment. They would repent. They would return to him, and he would receive them back into covenant fellowship. Then the cycle would repeat itself. As you go through the books of Kings, you'll see that cycle repeating itself again and again, not just in the book of of Judges, but in the books of Kings, and it gets worse and worse as we move along. God sends the prophets as his covenant lawyers to remind the people of their obligations of the covenant and the consequences of violating the covenant. Their message was a call to repentance 
and a message of coming judgment if they continued to disregard God's covenant. And finally, in the time of Jeremiah, God sends the judgment. A horrible kind of thing because of their sin. This wasn't just merely an event brought about by some pagan enemy of the people of God. Some random event. This was not an accident. This was God acting in faithfulness to the covenant. Saying, you violated it, now comes judgment. The destruction and all the anguish associated with it was directly from God's hand. And so you have to see the horror of that. As the people of God experienced this, they knew that's what they deserved. All of it was a direct result of God's just judgment. They knew it. And that's what made it so horrible to them. We have to understand this crisis for them in terms of this covenant relationship. And we have to see the theological statements that go before what's happening here in Lamentations and what comes afterwards that give light on what's happened in the destruction of Jerusalem. So there's kind of like brackets or parentheses around this event. And I want us to look at two different brackets. First is found in the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28, which predict explicitly what's going to happen to the people of God if they violated the covenant. The second is the theological summary of why the people were in exile that's found in 2 Chronicles 36. It spells out the fact that what they were experiencing was precisely because they had violated the covenant. As you look at this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 28, you see here that he's going to bring this nation of a foreign tongue that they don't know. And they're going to dis- this nation is going to come and wreak havoc on them, destroying things. As we move on through this passage, they'll lay siege to all the cities throughout the land. And then verse 53, because of the suffering that your enemy will inflict on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. Even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion on his own brother or the wife he loves or his surviving children, and he will not give to one of them any of the flesh of his children that he is eating. God said this in Deuteronomy long before it actually came to pass. This is serious. This is horrible. It calls for weeping. This is the summary of what God is going to do. And exactly that happened, almost word for word, in the destruction of Jerusalem. The city of God destroyed. The covenant children of God eaten by their own parents. This is horrible. This isn't smile, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. This is sin and what it does. The people who wept the words of lamentations had seen all of this. They had lived it. They had been there. They had done this. Think of the horror of recalling this and knowing that it was your sin that caused that to happen. We simply cannot appreciate the words of lamentations three without being torn apart emotionally by this reality. This isn't about some kind of mild suffering that we endure. 
This is horror at its worst. Now we have to look at the other bracket that comes afterwards. In 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 to 21, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people. And there was no remedy. And he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed young men and so forth. You go through there and he destroys Jerusalem, the temple of God. And all of this comes at the very end in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. It wasn't an accident that all of this happened. God had done this. Bad things happen. We say, oh, that was just an accident. Not in this case. This is God's sovereignty, judging his people for their sin. The people had refused to hear God's word, calling them back to faithfulness. They mocked the prophets. So finally God sends judgment, just as he said he would. And this judgment had been provoked by the continual sin of his people in violation of the covenant. The people went into exile because they failed to keep covenant. Jerusalem had been destroyed because they had failed to keep covenant. It wasn't God who had been unfaithful to the covenant. No way. He had kept covenant in perfect faithfulness, which meant that for him to remain faithful, both the blessings and the curses had to happen. So after prolonged demonstration of mercy, he brought judgment on them. The horror of the judgment that came was the direct fulfillment of his word in covenant faithfulness. Just as the first theological bracket is a warning to, of what's to come, the second theological bracket was giving the reasons for God's judgment and why they were in exile. We have to keep that in mind as we now turn to Lamentations and see this familiar passage. It's coming in the midst of all of that. Out of this horrible, horrendous context comes this little book of Lamentations. A book of poetry that is a cry of anguish, of unbearable proportions. A cry of why? The primary purpose of Lamentations was simply to weep over the destruction of Jerusalem. To mourn that loss. The historical narrative in Kings gives us the facts, but here... We come to grips with the emotional reality of all that happened. And it's nice to see this book in scripture. It's okay for us to weep over loss and suffering. We don't have to tough it out. That's what this book here, at least nothing else, teaches us. It's okay. Go ahead and weep. The fact that this, is, this book is in the Bible tells us that for us as Christians, weeping is a valid expression when we face suffering and loss. In the face of God's judgment, the only thing that people could do was weep and repent. But individual repentance wasn't enough because it was the nation that had sinned against God. And so this is an expression of national repentance and sorrow for sin. An acknowledgement that the entire people had sinned against their covenant Lord 
and had received his just judgment. Also here we see the nation crying out to the Lord, bewildered, despairing, hopeless, and yet crying out to the Lord for his mercy. This is national pleading with the Lord to return and be merciful to them in spite of their sin. It's a plea that God would continue to be their God, that they would continue to be his people. That covenant relationship would continue on in his mercy and compassion. This book originally had no title. It was referred to by the opening words of the Hebrew text, which simply says, how? The question the book is wrestling with is, how could this possibly happen? As we look at chapter 3 of the book of Lamentations, it has three times the verses of all the other chapters of the book. Because there are three verses for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is an acrostic poem. Every three-verse segment begins with the next letter of the alphabet. Highly, highly structured. As we look at this chapter, it personifies the people of God as they reflect on what has happened. We see this in verse 1 of the chapter where we read, I am the man who has seen affliction. This isn't Jeremiah speaking. He's speaking as the people of God personified in this one individual. And just a hint to what will come at the end of the sermon. This also points to Christ and his suffering. He's the one that's speaking. The first 18 verses depict one who is completely shattered by God's judgment. One who is on the verge of despair. This comes clearly to expression in verse 18 where we read, So I say, my splendor is gone, and all that I had hoped from the Lord. In Lamentations 3, 19 to 33, by way of sharp contrast, almost we can say out of the blue, In contrast with the rest of the entire book, and especially the rest of this chapter, there's a note of hope here. Yet in saying that, we must realize that it's not the kind of positive affirmation of someone in whose life everything is going well. If that were the case, we could understand it. Great is thy faithfulness. I'm, I'm having a good life. No, this is one that's being ground to dust by God's judgment. And in the midst of that, he says, great is your faithfulness. It's a confession of his faith. This passage, we see two kinds of remembering. In verses 19 to 20, we see a, a continued recollection of affliction. And it produces despair. Then in verses 21 through 33, we see deliberate remembrance of who God is and what he is like. With the resulting hope that comes from that. So in verse 19, there's a word that's used here, repeated in Hebrew, remember. And it pertains to past events which the memory is recollecting and reflecting on because of their present significance. This is not some romantic kind of recollection to the good old days. You know, this is not, oh, I remember back when we had it good in Jerusalem. No, this is not that kind of remembering. This is one who is suffering. And he's remembering the agony that he had seen in Jerusalem. The pain still stings and the memory can't be escaped. We need to note that there is no attempt here to dismiss the pain or the reality 
of the situation. This is not escapism. It's a true assessment of the reality in which the people of God find themselves. What is remembered is the affliction with the humiliation and the deprivation that associated with it. The translation in verse 19 of wandering is somewhat misleading. <clears throat> could think, well, that means the wandering of them as they go on exile into Babylon. That's not what this word means. The word wandering here has to do with rebellion, wandering away from God and his ways. So what's being remembered is that sin that caused all this judgment. And it causes despair. It's not surprising that what is also remembered is the resulting bitterness and the gall that went along with that. The distaste. And the outcome of all of this remembering is that the soul of the people becomes downcast within them. They despair. The expression that is used here pictures a person that's sinking down in the mud and just cannot get out. Just goes deeper and deeper into it. The core of their being, they are in anguish and a sense of hopelessness threatens to overwhelm them. However, in verse 21, there's a change, a change to a different kind of remembering. A different object is being recalled, not the affliction, the suffering, and the sin. In fact, even a different word is used here for remember. It literally says, to this I return. There's a conscious effort here on the part of the poet to say, I'm going back to something that I've forgotten. And I'm going to recall that. Something that I've been ignoring. And that is who God is. What his character is like. Here it isn't just a matter of calling something to mind, as the NIV translation might lead you to believe. It literally says, I'm taking this to the heart. He's going back and letting this affect his very, the very core of his being. It's not just a little mental game that he's playing. And it produces a completely different outcome. The situation is terrible. But in the midst of the bad situation, the poet's thoughts turn, as we'll see in the following verses, toward the Lord and his nature. And that and that alone gives him hope. Not the, it's not the situation. That hasn't changed. But it's the Lord and who he is that provides the basis for this cry of hope that we read in this passage. The word that's translated here as hope, which occurs again in verse 24 with different words again in verses 26 and 29, has to do with waiting patiently. It's an act of faith, of faithfulness. It's trusting the Lord for who he is. Hope because of who God is, plain and simple. And this is the point of the passage. In the midst of trying situations, it's good to recall just what our God is like. Not that that will change the situation, but it's good to recall who he is, what he's like in his person. And it helps us to put that situation into perspective. And it lets us see our God as who he is, and that would nourish our faith in him. It's faithfulness in suffering that this passage grapples with. And as we look at this passage, first of all, we see that the poet uses God's covenant name. The God who will remain faithful to the covenant forever. The I am, the one who always keeps covenant. 
he addresses his God as, as that God. Then he talks about God's loving kindness. The Hebrew word that's used here, chesed, is God's covenant love and mercy. It's God's undeserved favor, his grace. That's what he's thinking about. This is who God is, a God of grace who remains faithful to the covenant. And actually what this says is that God's covenant love never ceases. The word that's used here for cease means to be complete, finished, come to an end, exhausted or spent. What's being said here is that God's grace has no end. It will never run out. Let that sink in. Let it change the way you live. You will never, no matter how bad the situation, come to the point where you've used up God's grace. He's just run out. Doesn't have any more for you. It will never, ever come about that God's grace will leave you high and dry. His grace is abundant. It never ceases. Just think about your own sin. I do. And time and time again, God's grace comes with forgiveness and salvation. And that's what the poet is here thinking about. He turns if, as if that wasn't enough from God's grace to God's compassion. And he uses the plural form of compassion as though God had lots of different kinds of compassion that he shows us. And the word that's used here for compassion is the word, a root word that comes from the word for womb. It's a picture of God's care for us. Where that baby, that unborn baby in the mother's womb is protected, surrounded, nourished, nurtured, cared for. That's what God's like for us. And again, that's a truth we understand. But think about the context. The people that were singing this song of, of wailing had experienced horror. And yet the poet is saying, I'm thinking about your compassion, your nurture, your protection. And that too, just like God's grace, is never ending. It will go on forever and ever. And as you sense the poet recalling the nature of God, his grace and his compassion, you can almost feel his hope beginning to grow and take root. And that's the way it has to be with us. Not only when things are going well for us, but especially in the midst of suffering. When the situation seems hopeless, we need to turn to God, who he is, particularly his endless grace and mercy, and lay hold of that by faith. And then in verse 23, the poet continues his focus on who God is. He doesn't just draw attention to the ceaselessness of God's grace and compassion, but they're new every morning. I think that this, I think of a kind of a silly thing. When I was in Israel doing archaeology, every morning there would be a knock on the door at 5 o'clock when they would wake us up, and uh, the, the guard that had been there during the night would say, Boker Kov, Tov, good morning. It was banging on the door at 5 o'clock, good morning. And what the poet is saying here is God's mercy, God's grace is new every morning. Before you wake up, before you've ever had a chance to do anything that you might think would please God, God's mercy, his grace is there, renewed, as though it had kind of, the batteries had run down and overnight it charged back up and now there's this abundance of God's grace and mercy there for you as you face the new day. 
And after these thoughts on who God is and what he's like, it isn't surprising that we see here the poet break out into a confession of God's faithfulness. But we have to take a closer look at this to see just how amazing this confession is. Remember the context. Jerusalem is destroyed. They're in exile. It's not the context you'd expect somebody to say, great is thy faithfulness, as we'll be singing. And yet that's what he does here. The word that he uses here for great means abundant. God's faithfulness is abounding. And faithfulness is a very special word. It means steadfastness. It means reliability. It means truth. And it's always, almost always used in the context of the covenant. God is always true to the covenant. He's faithful to keep the covenant. And that's what's being confessed here. God's faithfulness to keep covenant. The poet is saying, oh Lord, please continue to be who I know you to be. Continue to be faithful to your covenant. Don't cut us off. Your faithfulness is great. This is recalling the wonder of who God is and what he is like that has produced this hope amidst an absolutely horrible situation. God's faithfulness that's evoked this response of faith. And the next several verses outline some of the characteristics of this hope and some of the ways that it comes to expression. And we certainly don't have time this morning to go over all of those, but I just want to mention them. He says that God is his portion. Think about that. He's not saying, I would like God and this, and this, and this. Saying, God, you're my portion. That's enough. And he lays hold of him. He waits for the Lord. He hopes. And yet how often, in the midst of some difficult, trying circumstance, we want something to happen right now. The poet is saying here, I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to hope in him. God is calling us here to simply wait on him in faith. Faith in his faithfulness. Faith in his grace and mercy. Faith in his character. Simply resting on him is our portion. Needing nothing else but him and him alone. It says that we're to wait silently. We're to seek him. We're to do so humbly in 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 an attitude of repentance. With our face in the dust. Before a holy God. After we've brought all that our God is to mind. His never-ending loving kindness. His abundant mercy. His great faithfulness. How else could we live except in repentance and trust in who he is. To save us. Then in verses 31 to 33, the poet returns to God's character. And he recalls that yet again. We move back to the notion of hope. We're reminded that the Lord will not reject forever. The people of God had experienced God's rejection, but they know that that's not going to be forever. He had cut them off, but it wasn't going to be forever. And that's exactly what our sin deserves. It deserves rejection by God, cast out without hope. However... Thanks be to God. There is a note of hope here. The poet is saying, yes, God has rejected us, but he certainly won't reject forever. There's hope in the salvation of the Lord, the salvation that comes by his grace alone. 
when we are in bad situations, when we're suffering in some way, when it seems like that's going to go on forever, and indeed the situation may not change in this lifetime, but this life is not eternity. This passage is not saying that God's going to make everything okay in this life, and it'll all work out in the end. Rather, this is a statement of faith which looks to a day when God will make things right. When he'll take all of our sorrow, all of our suffering, and take them away and replace it with the joy of his presence. It demands faith in who God is to remain faithful. And then in verse 32, the poet returns to where he started, namely the compassion and the loving kindness of the Lord. He acknowledges that God had caused all this grief his sorrow, his affliction. God was sovereign. This wasn't some cosmic accident. God's hand had brought this about. But this passage doesn't end on that negative note. Rather, the poet turns in hope to God who will have compassion. And using the same word that he had in verse 22, he says his hope is in God and his compassion. It's based on God's abundant loving kindness. What's being said here amid all of the sorrows, all of the troubles that the Israelites faced and that what we face in this life, we must lay hold of the unending compassion and grace of God and rest in faith in that hope that one day he will replace our sorrows and our pain with unending joy, the joy of his presence. It's saying that amid our, amidst our suffering, we are to remain faithful to the only one who is eternally faithful, namely Jesus Christ. And with that, we need to turn in conclusion to the second context. And that is that the book of Lamentations is pointing us to Jesus. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ that we see God's faithfulness come to its clearest expression. You want to know if God's faithful? You look at the cross. There God poured out his wrath on sin. But there God also poured out grace in abundance. We see God's covenant faithfulness in Jesus. Jesus was faithful to the covenant. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the covenant. But he also bore the penalty and the wrath that his people deserved for their violations of the covenant. We need to see Lamentations 3 in the context of Christ's affliction, his suffering and death on the cross. This passage is about him, not us. It's not even about the Israelites who went through all of this. We need to hear the cry of why, not only from the book of Lamentations, but the cry of why as Jesus hung on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he bore our sin. Far worse than the people experienced in the book of Lamentations. The only other place in scripture that we see that why is on the cross. We need to hear his cry of anguish as he bore our sin. Hear what that cry is really asking. Would God remain faithful or would he be cut off as he took on our sin and the penalty that we deserved? All of the curses of the covenant were poured out on him so that we might receive the blessings of the covenant by faith. He remained faithful unto death. That's why Jesus called himself truth, the faithful one. He trusted in the faithfulness of the Father and remained faithful. 
He was the one who trusted in the loving kindness and compassion of the Father, spoken of in Lamentations 3. It was Christ who was afflicted with bitterness and gall. He hoped in the Father and waited for him in the salvation that the Father would provide. Jesus went before his accusers without opening his mouth, just as it says in Lamentations. Christ offered his cheek to the smiter and was humiliated and disgraced beyond comprehension. This passage in the entire context of the book of Lamentations is a picture of what we deserve because of our sin. We have to let the horror of of that reality grip us to the core. We have to feel the hopelessness and the anguish that our sin has cut us off from the presence of God and his salvation and let it pierce our souls so that we cry out to him. Be merciful to us. Forgive us. The consequences of sin are dire. And we dare not ever, ever trivialize them. But neither can we allow the consequences of sin to overwhelm us and cause us to despair. We need to have hope and faith in the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. It's the horror of our sin and all the judgment that it deserves, which Christ took on himself on the cross. Demonstrating the faithfulness of God through his suffering and death, that we might have hope, that we might have him as our portion and as our salvation, and put our faith and hope in him. It is Jesus who demonstrates the faithfulness in suffering. Trust in him. And allow his faithfulness to enable you to live for him day by day to his greater glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.